We may pause here to take note of the importance of communications technology in unifying a large nation like ours. It is by knowing about one another, sharing each other's culture, this is by doing developments that are taking place in far corners of the country that we get a national binding identity. I am sure with his concern for unifying India as a single entity, Sardar Patel would have rejoiced at the advances in communications technology today. The story does not end here. The space program has held out further exciting goals, like taking advantage of near vacuum and near weightlessness in space for industrial applications, for pure alloys, new medicines, building structures for space colonies, harnessing solar energy. Remember that if we are able to set, set up huge mirrors in space and focus the sunlight, we will be able to uh, solve some of our outstanding energy requirements this way. So what started as curiosity about the cosmos has turned out to have exciting applications. I have labelled this example in some detail to underscore a point that no forward-looking society can afford to ignore the importance of basic research. Apart from training a person in logical thinking, pure research provides the foundations on which the facade of applied science and technology rests. I may give here an analogy with a house. You only see its beautiful walls and windows and admire the security and the comfort it offers. But you do not see the foundations on which that house rests. But try building a house without foundations and then you will see how important they are. India is one of the few developing countries to possess a sophisticated science and technology infrastructure resting on a sound foundation of basic research. It was the foresight of our leaders at the time of independence to think of creating it and sustaining it. But we cannot afford to be complacent on that count. The percentage of GDP we spend on science and technology in this way is declining. Whereas for some Asian countries who are behind us so far, it is rising. But the real crisis that I see ahead is human power. Where are the scientists of tomorrow? That is the question many of us are asking today. Let us take some lesson from history. I once read an article by Abdul Salam, the Nobel laureate who was from Pakistan. He pointed out that the Taj Mahal was built in India at around the same time as St. Paul's Cathedral in England. Both were marvels of architecture. But he said 
that in England, around that time or afterwards, there was Isaac Newton, there were other scientists. There was no corresponding development in India. So he asked, why did this happen? Why did our Rajas, Maharajas, Nababs, they were supporters of art, literature, music, various other fine achievements of human culture. But why did they not think of supporting science? They had their counterparts in Italy, in France, in Europe. They were local rich people, the equivalents of rajas of small states, local noblemen who used to support scientists because somehow they felt that the scientists were doing something useful, something intellectually beautiful. But we somehow never had this thing in our country. So we have to take lessons from that. We have to remember that there may be several reasons why we had submitted to colonial rule. Historians may argue about various reasons. One very common reason is the colonial rulers used the policy of divide and rule and that is how they could conquer this big country. But you must not forget that they had superior technology. And with superior technology, we really had no chance. And since we did not appreciate the merit of science and technology, we were in fact paying the price. In my generation, students looked up to science. And there was enough excitement and quality in higher education for us to enthusiastically opt for it. No more so today as all the research institutions and university departments in science will tell you, getting good students is becoming increasingly difficult. That education at all levels must be encouraged goes without saying. But while primary education is rightfully receiving increased support, why should this be at the cost of higher education and research? There is need to support both to the fullest extent to cut down on higher education and basic research in order to economize will prove short-sighted. I am not an economist, and so what I am saying may not be realistic according to experts. However, consider the example of an enlightened but poor family in which the parents have not had the benefit of higher education. Yet the parents feel that their children deserve higher education in order to improve their own lives. So they borrow money and educate their children, who then get good jobs and pay back the debts incurred. If the nation as a whole is short of money, can it not do likewise, borrow or raise the money in some way or other to invest in higher education and science in the expectation that the benefits will eventually more than compensate for the incurred debts? Of course, there will be several safeguards needed to implement such an idea. This is one side of the coin. There is the other side too. If the nation is to invest in higher education and science, it must ensure that the money spent is well spent. In my example of the enlightened family, 
the parents ensure that the children are serious about their studies so that the money borrowed in order to be spent on their education is not wasted in short the parents do not pamper the children they demand quality from them my criticism of the present scenario of higher education and science is that this other side of the coin is also being this neglected there is no demand of quality by the funding agency no monitoring of how their grants are spent no extra incentive for the high achiever at the cost of those who do not achieve the result is we have suffered a steady decline of quality and achievement which is why the younger generation is not attracted to scholarship scholarship in science in science the flowering of creativity peaks at young age say before the age of 35 the time when young scientists enter the profession of teaching and research they are around 25 thus the next 10 years are when they need to be encouraged yet our salary grades and promotion procedures are patterned on the administrative services i find that the scientists in research institutes are always looking over the shoulder how their grades are compared to joint secretaries additional secretaries deputy secretaries and so on always this comparison is there there uh, in the administrative services the entrant matures with age and assumes greater and greater responsibilities with time this pattern is quite different from the way a scientist evolves on on a fast track for the first 10 to 15 years and then coasting along the result is that a brilliant young scientist is forced to advance on the same track as a mediocre one the usual defense of the present system is along the following lines if you start giving special treatment to one amongst many you will be accused of favoritism so best play safe and treat everybody alike this is all india radio this highly democratic recipe is also the recipe for mediocrity in all fields of human endeavor there is a broad mediocrity with a few peaks that tower above the rest music fine art literature philosophy sports all have these towering figures they naturally exist in education and science as well i strongly urge that we set up a system for fast advancement of high achievers in all these fields there may be mistakes of judgment but with adequate safeguards we may be able to instill uh, a workable system which which will generate confidence among the younger generation that here in this country merit is being rewarded i make this plea because we increasingly hear of brain drain and shed crocodile tears with globalization of economy we are in for a very competitive future and merit not mediocrity is going to see us through the difficult times ahead let me turn now to society science interaction it is very necessary that society looks upon science and technology as tools for its betterment and as such it should be fully aware of what they stand for and what they are capable of 
Let me give an example. Suppose you are invited to a banquet where a large buffet is spread before you. The variety of dishes may take your breath away. It will of course excite your appetite. So you start helping yourself although you are aware that you will not be able to do justice to all the dishes. While you are eating, new dishes start appearing and you feel tempted to go for them. And this process goes on and on, tempting you to eat indiscriminately and beyond your capacity. In the end, you return home and next day's indigestion will remind you of your previous day's indiscretion. The response of human society to science and technology is somewhat similar. The latter, the science and technology, continue to pour new inventions and there is a rush to grab them. Whether highly industrialized or developing, the societies seem to run after new gifts of science and technology in an indiscriminate way and they suffer the consequences. For example, having seen the benefits of industrialization, we have gone for it without thinking of it in holistic terms. So we do not care about how industrial waste is disposed of and how harmful it can be. We do not seem to worry about the damage to environment and possible threat to the balance of nature. We do not allow for adequate safeguards against accidents which can be very tragic. A fallout of going in for automation in the interest of convenience, efficiency, time saving and all that is that we have forgotten to allow for the humans rendered redundant by this process. And that brings uh, social problems of unemployment, addiction to drugs or crime for lack of anything constructive to do and the widening gap between the rich and poor. Although we as nations claim to be advancing on the ladder of progress and communications are shortening the horizon, we still seem beset by parochial attitudes and to assert them we have resorted to stockpiles of weapons. These alas have become more and more effective in the art of destruction thanks to the advances of science and technology. Although it is claimed that by having nuclear stockpiles, wars will be put off because they are so much more destructive that they cannot uh, ever take place. However, the peace maintained in this way is unstable. An accidental or irresponsible beginning to a nuclear war will lead to unimaginable destruction of life and environment which may put our planet beyond redemption as habitat for life. Surely, if man calls himself a rational animal, human societies are expected to behave rationally and take well-considered decisions on what gifts of science and technology to accept and what to reject. Like our example of the diner at the buffet, who is well advised to think and choose before he eats. An example of irrational response to the problems facing us today is to say that science and technology are evil and we should abandon them. This is neither practical nor advisable, nor is the basic premise it is based on correct.
science and technology per se are not evil. They are instruments that can be used for evil or benign purposes. It all depends on the user, the human being or the human society. In fact, they are neutral and like water, they take on the color of whatever is mixed in them. So, in the last analysis, the responsibility rests fair and square on the society which wishes to harness science and technology. The society has to be knowledgeable. It is not suggested that everybody should be a scientist, but everybody should be educated to a level where these issues are appreciated. This is why higher education is important. In our democratic setup, most funding for science and technology comes from the popularly elected government in any country. So the directions in which these subjects grow have to be decided by the government, that is by the people by proxy. Yet we do not see these issues being highlighted in any election campaign. This is because those fighting the elections feel either that they are not important or that they would go above the heads of the masses. The first assumption is wrong and the second underscores the need for educating the masses to a level where they understand these issues. The scientists also have a responsibility towards educating the masses in the role of science and technology as influences shaping their destiny. They can discharge this responsibility in various ways. At the highly individual level, a scientist may try to explain to the lay person what is his or her field of research and what special developments are taking in it. Even the most uh, abstract of all fields will have some aspects that can be so communicated. At a wider level, one may choose to describe historical development in a scientific field, highlighting the role of individual scientists. The common image of a scientist as an absent-minded but highly objective individual may not stand up to scrutiny. The scientists are also human and have the same virtues and failings as any other person who is not a scientist. I believe the scare felt by the typical non-scientist towards science as something very hard to understand and appreciate may go away uh, or may be mitigated if anecdotes about human side of famous scientists are narrated. Often it helps to create public debates on issues relating to the impact of science and technology on the masses. Issues like genetic engineering, effects of new drugs and treatments, the need for preserving green forests and such other questions have become somewhat familiar to many because of their airing in newspapers and other media. But they need to be more aggressively presented so that a wider section of the society becomes aware of them. Science reporting in our media is at a very low level and many times copied from the West. In studies on science journalism in India, it was found that even after deleting all advertisements, the proportion of coverage of science and technology related items in our newspapers is hardly about 6%. With so many science graduates being produced every year, surely some could be attracted towards science journalism. 
they could cover recent discoveries interview scientists on the significance of recent trends in their fields make a critical assessment of their own and also present future perspectives whether they themselves write or speak about their work or describe it to a professional science writer the scientists themselves have a duty towards society in this regard this is even if they claim that their work is of no interest to common audience or that they have too much on their hand to find time for this activity they should remember that their research grants come from the national exchequer which has been contributed to by the typical citizen of the country so they have an obligation to discharge it is unfortunate that in the value system that exists in this country science popularization by scientists is considered an activity of low priority often there is this stated or implied judgment that dr x is doing science popularization because he or she is no longer active in research how, how wrong this inference is can be seen by taking a look at the list of science popularizers of repute many of whom are distinguished and active scientists of the nobel prize class today's media present several different types of opportunities apart from newspapers there are magazines the radio the television as well as public lectures question answer programs science exhibitions what not each avenue has its own strengths and weaknesses it is the strengths that we need to concentrate on and use them to the fullest extent a very responsive target audience is of school children they are usually very inquisitive and interested in new things as it is in their schools they are taught more through rote learning than through encouraging their curiosity about nature in my center we have introduced two regular programs for the children from secondary schools in pune in this very auditorium we conduct lecture demonstrations on various scientific topics this hall is full for each lecture we started by having this program on the second saturday of the month and because of increased demand we now have it on the fourth saturday as well in our second program uh, in the summer vacation school children spend a week at the center doing a project with a member on something related to science there are many school children who work with me during the summer vacation they come in the morning as they would do to their school spend about 6 hours every day from monday to friday we give them food during this time and at the end of this period of 5 days they write a report on what they have done you may ask what can an institution that is engaged in frontier research activities find of interest to a school girl in the 9th standard i can assure you that there are plenty such topics to keep her busy besides conveying to her some glimpses of the vast world of science that exists beyond her school textbook about 150 children take advantage of this scheme every year A few years ago the Department of Science and Technology introduced the concept of the National Science Day 
on february 28 1928 uh, c v raman published his nobel prize winning work that became famous as the raman effect so february 28 is chosen for the national science day on or around this day various programs are organized all over the nation to increase the public awareness of science and technology here at this center we this organize a science quiz as well as several other educational come entertainment programs for school children always with great success as measured by the participants response last year we kept an open house for pune public which also was extremely successful i wish other scientific institutions and university departments in the country also operate programs like these to bring the excitement of doing science to the young mind this is at a time when the flow of students towards science is dropping both in quality and quantity and therefore this is a effective way of addressing the problem these examples show that there is a lot to be done in the area of science popularization apart from the professional research institutes and university departments there are voluntary organizations that are also contributing to this program the gyan vigyan jathas in which several of these ngos come together from different corners of the country traveling through towns and wayside villages staging various cultural programs about science and awareness of science have shown how successful such a venture can be i will have more to say about these organizations in my second lecture that the general public is interested to know more about science if it is communicated in a comprehensible and interesting form is without question i have discovered this on numerous occasions at my public lectures in small towns once i had to deliver three lectures in a mafusil town uh, on three successive evenings on the first day the lecture hall was very full with a large crowd this standing is outside there was a talk of arranging the next lecture in an open air setting thinking however that the enthusiasm of the crowd will not last for the second day the organizers kept to the same venue the crowd actually increased on the second day and there was anger at the organizers for not heeding the experience of the previous day so finally the venue for the third lecture was in the open air and i estimated that about 10000 people were present it goes to show that away from our, our urban centers people are interested in knowing about what is happening in the world of science this is where i will conclude my first lecture that science and technology have become the predominant influences on our society needs to be recognized and we have to learn to live with them how we use these tools in the future depends on ourselves unless we as people inform ourselves about the advantages of judicious use of science and technology and the dangers of their misuse we will not be able to chart a successful path for our future welfare but the information alone is not sufficient 
one needs an attitude of mind for reacting to it. It is the scientific attitude which is not the prerogative of just the scientific profession but which extends to everyone. This will form the topic of my second lecture. Thank you.